Welcome to the Legal Academy, a podcast about law professors. I'm your host, Oren Kerr, a law professor at the University of California at Berkeley. This is an interview-based show in which I'll interview leading law professors about the Legal Academy. We'll cover topics like legal scholarship, teaching law, university service, and everything else that law professors think about. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Legal Academy, Episode 9. I'm your host, Oren Kerr. Uh, This is an unusual week in that there's no guest, or maybe a way of thinking about it is that I'm the guest. Uh, This is a week about questions and answers. I've received a bunch of really terrific questions uh, from uh, those watching the show, uh, and I asked for more questions on Twitter recently, and so I've got a bunch of great questions uh, from you, the audience members, and I wanted to take this week as an opportunity to answer those questions, or at least to offer some thoughts on what the answers uh, might be. Uh, To give you an idea of where I'm going to be going, I'm going to be spending a lot of time talking about uh, the lateral market. I've received a bunch of great questions about how does the lateral market work? How do you get hired uh, uh, from one school to another? Uh, And then also some really good questions about law school teaching. Uh, I've not talked a lot about teaching, and I first want to talk about why I haven't been talking about teaching uh, as much, and then also offer some thoughts on, on teaching. Uh, and uh, that'll occupy most of, most of the time of, of the show. Uh, and I wanted to start with uh, kind of a meta question that I got from, uh, uh, from a viewer, uh, which was, what's the audience of the show? What's the point? What am I trying to achieve by having this show? Uh, and so I want to talk a little bit about kind of what I'm trying to do. The way I see it, uh, being a law professor is an amazing job. We're just incredibly unfortunate uh, incredibly fortunate to have this job. Uh, and part of that is because um, the teaching loads uh, for law professors in the United States tend to be low. The tenure rates tend to be high. Um, once you have the job, uh, it's kind of an amazing, as, as Dan Markell once put it, a loophole on life. Uh, it's just an amazing position. And what that means is that um, there's a lot on the market. There's a lot about how to get an initial entry-level teaching job, uh, and then tenure standards are pretty low, so most people will will get tenure. And then there's this question of what happens next. How do you define yourself as an academic, and and how do how do schools that consist mostly of tenured professors how do they define themselves as an institution? And and there's no right or wrong answers to these questions. There are all these just issues of you know, self-definition and how should we think about these things and what are the different ways that we might approach scholarship, how might we approach teaching, how might we approach service, um, all these questions about what kind of academics we want to be, how do we want to do our jobs. There's no right or wrong answer and once you have tenure you more or less can't be fired. Uh, so people have decades uh, of their career in which it's up to them to define how they want to do this job. And so I've always been really interested in these questions of how should we do these jobs? And I thought, let's talk to really great people uh, who've thought a lot about these issues and who have had marvelous successes themselves uh, and, and, and get out the different ways of thinking about it. So, so my goal in having this show is to bring out different perspectives on how to do this job. Um, that was the goal. It was really an, an, an audience of, of law professors that I had in mind. 
Um, my, my recent Twitter poll suggests that the audience is actually mostly people that are interested in becoming law professors or law students who want to know kind of what's the deal with my professors, like who are these people and how do they think. Um, so the audience is, is less uh, the people who have the job now and those, than those that are interested in, in getting the job. And that, that makes a lot of sense. I can certainly understand uh, that. But the goal that I had, at least in creating, was more kind of um, uh, with, with the audience of law professors in mind. Okay, let me turn to the question uh, that I've received some, some good emails about, uh, and that is lateral hiring. So we've talked a little bit on the show about lateral hiring and how it works, uh, but let me, let me offer a big picture perspective, and I'm going to start from the beginning, especially because many people uh, watching or listening are not law professors and have no idea how this works. So let me start, start from the beginning uh, and offer some, some big picture thoughts on this. So um, law schools typically have faculty appointments committees, uh, which are groups of the faculty that are in charge of uh, figuring out who might be an attractive candidate to bring forward uh, for a potential hire. Uh, usually the appointments committee is appointed by the dean. Uh, sometimes it's elected by the faculty or there's sort of a mix in terms of how they get there. But it's a group of faculty typically representing different kind of factions on the faculty, different types, uh, areas, fields. Uh, and they're all brought together with the task of figuring out who the faculty might want to um, uh, have have come through and be considered for a, for a position. Um, when the uh, faculty appointments committee is formed, sometimes it will have um, significant input from the dean and sometimes it, it won't be. Um, so the question that you have as a candidate is uh, how might you attract the interest of the faculty appointments committee? And, and I should say, I should, I should have said this uh, beforehand, it turns out this year I am actually on the faculty appointments committee at my home institution, UC Berkeley, uh, and absolutely nothing I'm saying here has anything Berkeley specific in it um, uh, or any connection to the institution that I'm currently a part of. In fact, the, the appointments committee has not done anything at Berkeley, and so I have no idea how things work internally at Berkeley. This is entirely the perspective of, of first having been a candidate myself and also having done appointments at other other schools. Um, so the, the goal from the candidate's perspective is to sort of get the interest of the appointments committee. Uh, and the appointments committee is going to be have some sort of guidance typically from the dean or, or from a chair of the committee or something um, about what kind of candidates they're looking for. Let's say it might be, for example, subject matter based. Uh, it might be a senior uh, basket weaving law professor has retired and the school really needs somebody to teach basket uh, basket weaving and, and, and the law and uh, they need someone and so this, the appointments committee is tasked with finding somebody uh, to be the new basket weaving law professor for that school. This is obviously a hypothetical example, not a real course. Fortunately, um, uh, but this, this, the appointments committee will then be in charge of trying to figure out who's good, who's out there. Now, this is the interesting question. How does an appointments committee typically do that? Well, usually they will consult with members of the faculty that teach in that area. Uh, so they will, for example, let's say basket weaving law is a, a 1L course. Uh, and so there will already be three or four people on the faculty that teach that class regularly. And they will, the appointments committee may consult with the uh, appointments committee. Uh, the appointments committee may consult with the current professors who teach this and say, who's good? Uh, who, who should we think about hiring? Who's a leading uh, basket weaving law scholar? Uh, and that will lead to the creation of a couple of names of people to consider. Uh, the appointments committee may 
ask people sort of recognize as leading people in the field at other schools, uh, who's good. And so there's sort of usually the creation of a list of uh, here's a bunch of people who we should uh, take, take a look at uh, that, that are potential hires. At that point, usually the school will contact people who are on the list and say, would you like to be considered? Some, the exact timing of when the school will contact the potential candidate varies, but there's oftentimes an, a preliminary inquiry just to say, hey, are you interested? Because from the school's perspective, they want, they want to in, make offers to great people who may come. Uh, so they need to know who's actually interested uh, in, in making a lateral move. Uh, and so candidates will, ha sometimes they are very interested, sometimes they say, you know, I, I can't, um, I have kids in school, or they're just very happy where they are. Uh, and so uh, that's obviously gonna be candidate specific. Uh, but the schools will make inquiries into who's interested, and then that will lead to a smaller list. And then typically they will read the work of the, of the potential candidate. Uh, they're going to inquire into, you know, basically figure out whose work is really good. Uh, and so they're going to read it themselves or they're going to seek reviews. Sometimes they'll be internal reviews. Sometimes they will be external reviews that is within the school or at people at other schools. But they're trying to just figure out, like, who's the leading scholar in this field or who's a significant scholar who we can hire, who's, you know, an up and coming academic, academic or an established academic, just someone who's really um, uh, uh, excelled who we may be able to, to lure from their, their current institution. Now, a couple things about, uh, about that. One is that it's mostly scholarship based. Uh, and so schools uh, may be interested, they, the schools vary in terms of how much they care about how good a teacher a lateral uh, hire is. Uh, but typically when they're looking to fill a spot, they're focused on who's the top scholar who we can attract in a particular area. Uh, and another thing about that is they'll, they're inevitably asking the people who they know, people at their school or maybe a few people at other schools, who themselves may not have a completely unbiased perspective about the field. So it'll often happen, I'm gonna stick with my, my basket weaving uh, uh, example. Uh, in the, the, the school will uh, uh, ask the professors at, uh, who teach basket weaving law at the school who's good. They're going to probably know mostly about um, people who've written work similar to theirs or co-authors on, on case books or articles. And so they're going to have their own kind of limited view of the world. And that can lead to a problem, which we talked about, I think, in, in, in uh, the Eric Posner episode of schools sort of replicating themselves within fields. So, you know, if basket weaving law is divided into different schools of thought, uh, you might have a school that focuses on one school of thought because when they ask the people who are currently on the faculty who's good, they will recommend people who are also part of that school of thought. Uh, and unfortunately, that can lead to uh, uh, you know, a lack of breadth in, in, in coverage and that you can have sort of great people who aren't in that specific uh, a style of, of, of approach to the field who are overlooked because they're not sort of uh, coming to the mind of, of the folks who are already at the school. Uh, but, but the appointments committees will try to generate a list of the top people, read their work, figure out who do we think is really good. Uh, and, and then they'll try to uh, 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 invite those people in for an interview. And at that point, it actually becomes a lot like the entry level process. Uh, a person will come in for a day long interview, They'll do a job talk. Uh, the 
faculty will figure out, you know, how, what do they think of the job talk, what do they think about the candidate, uh, and give feedback to the appointments committee. The appointments committee will then vote and say, who do we think, um, uh, uh, you know, who, who seems to have the support of the faculty, who should be brought forward for a full vote of the faculty, and then that goes to a faculty vote. And the, some faculties defer a lot to the appointments committee. The committee, they figure, the committee has looked really closely at this. At other schools, there's almost like a de novo uh, inquiry. They really don't care what the appointments committee has done. They want sort of how, how is the faculty going to approach this candidate each time uh, anew. Uh, but that's roughly how the process works. Uh, uh, appointments committees tend to change year to year. Uh, so from the candidate's perspective, sort of each year is almost a new year. And this matters a lot, in part because lateral hiring can take a long time. This is a big difference between entry-level hiring and lateral hiring. Entry-level hiring happens on a fairly set calendar. Uh, uh, you, know, you have the year starts, there's the AALS meat market, not meeting this year because of COVID, but in every other year, that's how it would work. And then you have callbacks based on a certain time, and it all sort of follows a certain schedule. That's not how lateral hiring works because there's no one moment when everyone's focused on this candidate. Instead, it's individual schools looking at individual candidates. Uh, and the process of being hired at the lateral level can be something that happens over multiple years. Uh, uh, you might have somebody who uh, is considered one year uh, 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 and then it's, the candidacy is paused for a bunch of reasons and then the next year is picked up again a third year is considered an offer comes out then the person comes the fourth year or maybe delays for a year and it's the fifth year so it's a long drawn out process uh patience is unfortunately required uh, uh typically to go through this process it can take it can take a long time and and um and because appointments committees change uh year to year at most schools sometimes it's a two-year appointment sometimes it's a one-year appointment it sort of varies i think institution to institution uh, it means that you can have a situation where you're a great candidate for one committee but then the next committee isn't that excited and your candidacy sort of goes down for reasons completely out of your control um, uh, or the opposite it could be the next year you have a, a committee that is particularly well uh, uh, suited to your your interest and your approach and so um, it's it's just there's a lot of randomness in in the process, uh, and that's actually something that I, I I think is important to flag for for all of this. I mean, all of legal academic hiring has a heavy randomness component. It is not predictable, um, but lateral appointments is I think much less predictable than entry level appointments. With entry level appointments, you have everyone, all the different schools that are hiring that year, looking through the book that is created by the AALS for this purpose. And, and schools are sort of, everyone's looking and everyone's sort of interested to know who else is interested in a particular candidate. It's all sort of this, this focus and it all has a very specific time frame that sort of focuses the schools uh, uh, and says who's in contention and who's, who's not. Lateral appointments is each school acting individually typically without um, a sense of other schools necessarily looking at that person. Maybe they have a sense, and it certainly helps the candidate if there is a sense of other schools also looking or develop a little bit of a competition there. Um, but, but typically, it's, it's, um, it's one to one. There, there's no pressure in terms of we need to hire this person right now or else we'll miss our chance. Um, it's, and, and that means that it's, there's just a lot more randomness built into it. I think also just because uh, senior professors will have um, a, a fuller body of work and a fuller reputation and faculties will often divide on what they think of that 
person's work or that person's reputation. It, it, entry level evidence sort of comes in on the blank slate and you can say, oh, this person has done, you know, three articles, read the three articles. And that's like the, the entire world of that person's work. If somebody has 10 or 20 or 30 articles, there's just sort of more to disagree on. Uh, so so uh, lateral hiring tends to be, I think, less, um, it, 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 it can take longer. It's sort of more random uh, uh, in terms of whether it works out at a particular school than even entry level appointments, which itself can be, can be pretty random. Uh, so two, two more parts of this that I think are worth talking about. One is the role of visiting professorships. Something that I talked about uh, uh, in the episode with Sarah Losky. Uh, so traditionally, a lot of law schools required a visit before they would consider a lateral candidate. And so this would be a so-called look-see visit, and that would be they're looking at you to see if they want to hire you. Uh, and a look-see visit is different from a so-called podium fill visit in that it comes with appointments committee interest. Uh, the appointments committee has decided they are interested in the candidate, they want to hire the candidate or want to look into hiring the candidate. And then as part of the school's process, they will say, we have a visit requirement or strong preference. Uh, and so the dean will then invite the person to uh, uh, visit with the understanding that while they are at the school, they are being considered for a job. They will have the opportunity to do a job talk uh, and they will be considered for a position Oftentimes, the actual consideration will happen the next semester once they're back at their home institution. But it's at least they will they will be considered for a position uh, during the visit, and that that's distinct from a podium fill visit, which is just um, uh, there's a there's a, a course that needs to be taught at the school. They need someone to come and uh, teach the class. That doesn't come with appointments interest. They just need a professor to handle that course. And if you're the potential candidate, you certainly want to know. Is this a look-see visit or is this a podium fill visit? Because they're very different from an appointments perspective. Uh, and then there's a broader debate that uh, Sarah Losky and I touched on, uh, which is, you know, um, if you're a potential candidate, do you want to do a visit? Should you do a visit? They're really, really tough on the candidate because uh, basically it's a four-month job interview or an eight-month job interview if you're there for the year. Uh, in which you're being considered for a position uh, and with families, people have spouses, people have children, people, you know, family, you can't quite just get up and move uh, uh, that easily. So I think there's a trend against having visits as a requirement of being considered for a lateral move. Uh, but at least traditionally that was something that was done and it's something that some schools still still continue to do at least uh, uh, at least often. Uh, so that's one 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 thing to consider. Um, uh, the other uh, point I wanted to make, a practical question that uh, a lot of people uh, will have is, okay, that's how the process works. How do I get a school interested in me? Can I just email the appointments chair and say, hi, I'm over here. I'd be interested in coming to your school. Um, you know, do you want to hire me? So there's common wisdom on this, and we'll, I think is mostly right, which is that it usually doesn't work uh, to just contact an appointments chair and say, here I am. Um, and that's true for a couple of reasons. First, um, the appointments chair may not know who the candidate is or know any sort of reason to think the person is particularly good. Uh, and so from the appointments chair's perspective, they may think, well, I want to know someone is thought to be good before we start looking into this candidate. Uh, uh, and just a cold call kind of, hey, I'm over here, is not going to communicate that information. So a lot of times um, appointments committee just don't know what to do with it. Um, 
And that's putting aside the question, they, they may not actually have interest in person, a person teaching in that field at this time. There's all sorts of reasons why um, uh, it, that usually does not, does not work. Um, what, what does work more often is instead of um, calling the committee uh, a chair and saying, here, I'm over here, would you be interested? Um, if you know someone on a faculty who, can, uh, who would support you uh, and who can raise the question with their appointments chair, that I found, I've, you know, sort of anecdotally, it, it works more um, because that's that comes to the appointments chair not as like someone saying, "Hey, will you please hire me?" It's it's a colleague of that professor saying, "I've heard this person is interested in moving. I know this person. This person is really good. Um, we should consider them." And so that's something which is more likely to generate that appointments interest um, uh, within a school. Um, uh, and so if you know someone at a school, the kind of the way to maybe, you know, tease out is that school some a school that would be interested in me is to if you know someone on the faculty to contact them and and uh, see if there might be interest in the school or let let them know that 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 you're uh, that you're interested. Um, with that said, a lot of times the way the process works is it's the the hiring school that will make that initial contact of the candidate rather than the candidate making the initial contact with the hiring school. So at a lot of schools, they'll just kind of, this is obnoxious, I'm just telling you how it is, I'm not defending it, they'll kind of assume, like, of course people are interested, uh, or at least they'll take the lead in figuring out who the school is interested in, and then um, they'll make this inquiry to see with the candidate, you know, is it going to be a waste of our time to consider you? Or are you actually interested in, in joining us? Uh, and so uh, typically it will be the school that, that starts the process. And um, that's, of course, very frustrating uh, for potential candidates. You might be at, uh, at an institution and thinking like, you know, I, where I am is fine, but I actually don't like the city where I live or I'd like to be at a different school with a you know, different faculty or whatever the reasons are that people have uh, to potentially want to change schools, uh, it's frustrating that you can't sort of you know press a button and say okay now consider me. Uh, but unfortunately, that's that's oftentimes the way it works is you kind of have to wait for the schools to contact you. Except if you know somebody who can and you can sort of float this question of hey you think the school might might be interested in me. Uh, so that's usually how it works. How do you get a school interested? And this is sort of the next, last question maybe. How do you get a school interested uh, if uh, you don't know somebody on the faculty and you're just like, you're like, hey, I'm over here. And you, if it's considered a little bit, you know, um, uh, unlikely to work or even maybe a little bit rude, not rude, just not likely to work um, to to contact the, the uh, appointments chair. How do you get them interested? Um, you know, I, I. This is, of course, the toughest part. And, and, and I should say um, I was. Uh, a professor for 16 years and wrote something like 60 law review articles before I received my first uh, lateral offer. So, so I know this frustration uh, of sitting there thinking, "Wait a minute, I'm, you know, I, I, why isn't this working?" A lot of professors have this um, uh, uh, dynamic. How, what can you do, practically speaking, uh, to uh, be one of the people who's thought of? Um, and so I think there, there are a couple things you, you can do. Um, one is, uh, most importantly, write really good scholarship. Uh, write scholarship that is recognized as being good, that people are talking about, that um, is getting attention within the field. Uh, and so when they come to, uh, when the appointments chair comes to schools and says, um, is, is, who's good, your name will show up. I think that's, you know, that's, that's, 
that's sort of the 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 direct uh, way of doing it. Uh, also, I think you know the more you know people in the field, uh, I think that helps. And and also, if there are ways of just letting people know that you might be interested in moving, sort of quietly getting the word out, um, I think that also can be effective. It just sort of raises the chance that your name will be raised as somebody who's who's interested in moving. Um, one of the the complications here is that schools really don't know who's who's interested in moving, um, and so uh, a lot of times schools, the, the the answer for schools is they should just be able to reach out and say. You know, very quickly, like, are you interested or not? Um, but they might feel uh, they don't want to do that. They don't want to get somebody's hopes up or something like that. Um, or they may feel that uh, people may say they're interested when really they're not interested. Um, it's all uh, it, you know. It's all a little bit high school like. <laughs> it's dynamic. If some of this is ringing ringing a bell from many years ago. Um, but that's uh, the tricky question. How do you sort of get yourself on the list? And um, uh, 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 you know, writing really good stuff is the most. Uh, direct and important way of doing that. I think you know, going to conferences, being known, speaking well, you know, impressing people is sort of the the um, uh, uh, way of doing it. But I, I think in general, you know, this is sort of the networking function of going to conferences or something like that is getting your name out there. It's, you know, you want to be on the list when when somebody is asked um, who's good, who should we who should we hire, and so that's that's I think the um, the challenge. Okay. Uh, I want to turn now to uh, teaching. Uh, so I've gotten some interesting questions about teaching. And uh, the questions uh, were, in part, why haven't we talked about teaching? Uh, and which we haven't. Uh, we've done a little bit. We talked about course evaluations uh, in the Sarah Lossky episode a little bit. Uh, but for the most part, I've not talked about teaching. Uh, and um, that's obviously an important part about what law professors do. And so I first want to talk about why I hadn't talked that much about teaching, and then I want to talk about teaching. So why haven't we talked a lot about that? Um, it's, it's, it's hard to talk about teaching for a couple of reasons, one of them being that every professor has their own style, uh, really reflecting their personality of what works well for them in the teaching setting. And it's hard to generalize that, uh, uh, and it's also hard because different topics are conducive to teaching them in different ways. And at different schools, there are different styles that are more or less common or more or less kind of accepted at that school. Uh, and so the question of how to teach a law school class is really, um, it's something kind of so personal or so, so case specific that it, it's hard to generalize about. Uh, and, and part of that as well is I think, you know, trying to figure out who has succeeded in teaching and who has not. That itself is its own challenge. In the Sarah Lossky episode, we talked about how teaching evaluations have a lot of problems, uh, especially with respect to uh, race and gender uh, and expectations of students along those lines that, that make, it's not like you can just sort of go with the numbers and say, oh, this person has good teaching evaluations, therefore they're great. Um, uh, it's, it's hard to figure out who's the most successful teacher or who's a less successful teacher. And especially the way the tenure process works, you know, once somebody's tenured, they're usually not evaluated based on their teaching, at least formally uh, uh, after that. Uh, and so, so it's something that's actually kind of a hard question to, to, to get a, a handle on and to talk about, um, I think because it is so um, person specific. And here I'll say, you know, you, you may have a similar experience from when, when you were in law school, uh, some of you are probably in law school that are watching, uh, your favorite professor is not 
it's usually not like a specific style that you liked. It's that professor. So I think back to my favorite professors when I was in law school, a wide, my two or three sort of favorites were, did not have the same style of teaching. Instead, they had a, a style of teaching that worked for them. They would present the material in an engaging way and present it in a way that really worked for them based on who they were. And so generalizing about sort of the right way to teach or here's the way to do it, is, is, I think it's tough. It's like, who are you and how do you want to present it? How do you think of the field? What is the field? Um, those can all impact how to teach. Uh, so that's, that's why I haven't talked about it. Now let me turn to talking about it. Um, I did want to offer at least one way that has worked for me um, uh, again, with a caveat that this is all idiosyncratic, just my own uh, my own way of approaching this. Um, so, um, in a lot of the courses that I'm teaching, there's a certain amount of doctrinal material. There's like a, a legal doctrine that I want to cover in a particular class, and I'll break down the syllabus, you know, in terms of different doctrines. And so, maybe uh, one one class or two classes on a particular rule. Um, uh, or, or maybe two rules in a particular class. And what I want to do is um, um, first present the rules. And so I'll often begin a class with a lecture, just saying, here's the rule. I want everyone to know what the black letter law is. I'm not trying to hide that or anything like that. Just here's the rule, so everyone's on board. And then I want to discuss the main case, uh, or the main cases, the classic cases, or at least the cases that bring out the nature of the doctrine in the most illuminating ways. Um, and I'll call on students to discuss the case and discuss the reasoning. And, and often what I'll do then is I'll have the students express a view on whether they think the case is correctly decided or whether they're persuaded by the reasoning of, of you know, the majority opinion. Let's say it's a case with a majority and a dissent. Uh, and I want to ask the student why. I want to get kind of their values, their perspective as to why that's the right or wrong answer. And then I want to get other perspectives uh, there. So the way I think about a lot of um, uh, law, at least in the classes that, that I teach, is oftentimes there's um, a debate of values, uh, a w different ways of thinking about the world, different ways. Um, you know, maybe it's based on who we trust or how much we value one interest over another interest. Uh, and that then turns into a debate over legal rules. And then the judges typically, since I'm mostly teaching in public law areas, uh, will uh, uh, have a rule that results from that. And there will be the majority rule, and that will fit together with all the different majority rules. Uh, and so there's the rule, the doctrine, and then there's the cases from which the rules came. And then there's the underlying debate of values uh, with that, that sort of clash, which I think explains where these rules came from. So when I'm teaching, I'll usually try to start with a rule then move into the case that animated or even created uh, uh, the rule, kind of the, 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 the context from which the rule came. And then I want to debate. So I'll call on that one student about like wh whether they agree with the rule. And then I'll you know, say, who disagrees? And I want to get, I want to find somebody who looks at it the other way. And of course, this works best when it's a problem of which there's just a, just a clash of opinions. People just look at this problem differently, which I think most interesting areas in law. That's true. Um, and so you'll get you know, two students, and I want them to kind of go back and forth. And I want, I want everyone to kind of weigh in and from these, all these different perspectives. And then I kind of come in at the end and say, OK, here's the range of views we've had. Here are the values that those are reflecting. Here's what the courts ended up doing because of who was on the court, or for example, at that time, um, or uh, because of maybe some interesting historical part of it, whatever the particular reason. But I want, I want the students to understand the rule, 
the context in which the rule arose, and then the, the debate over the rule. And so I'm teaching typically in classes where I've you know, thought a lot about like where are these rules coming from, how do they fit together? And so I want to sort of, you're, you're stepping back and you're sort of going meta basically about that, such that the students will take away the rule, the context of the rule, and then the big debate over the rule, and, and then fit that together with the rest of the material that you've covered uh, so far. That's what I try to draw out. And, and um, part of that is, um, the students that may be having trouble will always get the rule at the beginning. The most advanced students are sort of waiting for the meta debate uh, to happen and hopefully participating in it. Uh, uh, but there's sort of something in it for everyone. I'm uh, not hiding what the rule is, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of focusing our attention on those debates and then putting the pieces together of tying together the different classes and different different materials. Uh, that's what I try to do. And this sort of leads to the great cliche of like every law professors, they do a modified Socratic. I also do a modified Socratic uh, in that um, uh, the point of calling on students is is in part just to get voices talking. I want I want students sharing their views because I'm so much of what I'm doing is about a debate over different perspectives. I just needed students active and talking about it. And then, of course, calling on students also creates some incentive to prepare so you at least know the basic facts of the case. Um, uh, but it's really about sort of getting those voices uh, out there. Okay, uh, so that's that's teaching. Uh, now I want to turn to, uh, I received some really interesting questions about um, scholarship for junior professors and how to get started. Uh, and the question was framed to me in this way. Um, should you try as a junior uh, scholar to join a pre-existing debate? Uh, or should you try to start a debate? In other words, when you're trying to think of your first article, should you, should you say, oh, look, here are these bigwig professors and they're talking about this. Let me try to write on that topic and see if I can uh, uh, take a new perspective on, 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 on that. Um, or should I find something that no one's writing about or, or that is you know, some new thing that people haven't touched on yet um, and, and do that? And so where do you start is sort of the, the question. And I think, uh, as with all of these questions, there's no one right answer. Uh, it all depends on where you think you can have the most impact. Uh, but I do think there are some relatively predictable questions you should be asking when you make this decision. Uh, the first thing is, do you have something interesting and important to say about the ongoing debate? So you could say, oh, look, the leading people in the field, they're having this debate and you know this you know, top law review is about this. Um, uh, one professor takes that view, another professor takes the other view, and you look at it and you go, I think they're both wrong, I have a third view. First thing you have to ask yourself is, is this really something that is uh, uh, a new take that is helpful that will advance that debate? Sometimes uh, 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 it's hard uh, to jump into a debate because you don't have all of the knowledge that leads up to the point of the people that are having that discussion. And if you try to jump in, you might just sort of like, you sort of miss it, right? Um, the benefit of jumping into a pre-existing debate is that there's work done for you in terms of selecting an important topic, right? Hopefully the senior bigwig people in the field are having this debate because that's a really critical question. And so you're not gonna be wasting your time on something that's irrelevant or easy. Uh, and so that's the benefit and the drawback is what can you say that's really new about this? In terms of picking a new topic, uh, the benefit is then you don't have like all of the, um, uh, you, you, don't, you don't have the problem of what can you say that's new about it because the whole topic might be new. Um, on the other hand, you have the problem of making sure you found an interesting and important topic. 
Uh, it may be that no one else has written about this issue because there's just not a lot there. Uh, and so you might sort of say, hey, I am the number one expert in this new thing. And then everyone says, well, who cares about that new one thing? Uh, and, and what to make of that, I think, really depends on uh, uh, where you are in your career and how confident you are that the topic is an important one. Uh, so if you're an assistant professor, you've already uh, uh, gotten a, a tenure track job somewhere, and you're thinking, how am I going to, you know, what's, what's the arc of my career going to be? Embarking on a new project where you look at it and you go, I think this is actually really important, and people have, for whatever reason, haven't focused on it, that can be great. Um, it may be harder when you're on the entry-level market if you've got something new because people are may look at the what you've written and said like, well, I don't know what to make of this. This doesn't sort of fit a slot in my mind. Um, now, you may be somebody who focuses really on a certain methodology rather than an end result uh, or a, a doctrinal subject. And in that case, your methodology is really what you're bringing to bear on that and the particular subject of your of, of the article may not matter all that much. Uh, but if you're writing on a particular subject, um, without like a you know, specific methodology, whether you know, legal history or economics or philosophy or psychology. Uh, it, it may be that writing on something new when you're in the beginning is, is hard because people like, they don't know what this topic is about. They don't know what to make of that. Um, it may be rewarding over time uh, if you can keep building in that field, but it may just be something that's, that's hard to start with. Um, so so uh, I guess my overall advice is uh, when you're starting and you're looking for topics and you're trying to figure out what to write about, um, you're, you're looking for something new. You're looking for something that is what you can add, something that other people haven't seen for, uh, or haven't developed uh, in, in a problem. Uh, and I, a really great perspective on this, I thought, was from Jamal Green in the second uh, show. You know, he, he, he had a point about how you know, junior scholars typically are bringing to the debate either um, uh, sort of doing things that other people haven't, haven't had the time to do more than an entirely new sort of philosophical frame for a, a problem. So it is very hard when you're a junior person to sort of open up a whole new field and say, here's this you know, new legal theory or something like that. Um, but it's, it, it is something, if you can find a new problem to bring an existing methodology on, you may be able to find a problem or spend a lot of time working through a problem in a way that others just haven't had the time to do. That, that, that can be like a nice, uh, a, a nice first article, a nice sort of way of, of entering a field uh, uh, and, and adding value just by virtue of you had the time to work through this problem. Uh, and then I think uh, other folks that have found, you know, there may be new issues that are working their way through courts that just professors haven't seen yet because most professors aren't sort of, you know, um, I guess the old version would be like reading the slip opinions. There are no slip opinions anymore, but you know, checking Westlaw to see if there are new cases. Uh, and so you may be able to find new developments and fit them into prior frameworks. Uh, those are all great. Um, but I think a lot of um, the, the process of finding new article topics for a junior, you know, sometimes people say like, oh, this is so hard. I've never done this before. How am I going to sort of find that first topic? To my mind, that's, that, that is in, in a lot of ways the challenge of being an academic. Um, going back to the very beginning of this episode where I talked about how, you know, you, you have this amazing job. You can kind of spend your time how you want to spend it. How you spend it is in part based on the topics that you pick that you think are worth your time. And so figuring out here's the topic I want to spend time on is in some ways the most important judgment you make as a professor or a wannabe professor about what it is that 
the field means to you or what it is that your academic work means to you. And, you know, a, a law professor, let's say, or a professor who writes, you know, I don't know, two articles uh, a, a year, maybe one long article and one short article. I'm just sort of picking random numbers. You know, the topics of those articles are topics you're going to spend an incredible amount of time with. Uh, you, the writing process, the research process, it just takes so much time. Uh, and so you should find something that you think is important and interesting where you feel like I'm really adding something to the debate by writing on this. Uh, and so to my mind, that means you should realize that the process of finding the topic is in some ways as important as what you do once you find the topic. Give that initial finding the topic question room. And, and often, I think what works is to uh, come up with a lot of different topics. Instead of just being like, you know, I will now spend the month of, you know, it's, what is it, July? I will spend the month of July pondering what is my next article. You might try five different things and, and sketch out you know, two or three page introductions of, um, of five different ideas and then see which one of them make the most sense or make them, you can even ask a friend like which one of these makes sense or talk to somebody in, in the field. Um, try different things because once you've latched onto an idea, you spend so much time on it. Uh, and one idea typically leads to another idea, which leads to another idea. So, so that time figuring out what you should write about is really, really important. It's not just wasted time. That is kind of in a lot of ways, that's what we do that, that is key. Uh, last thing, I received a, a question um, in terms of getting help, especially if you're a junior scholar and you're interested in a, a subject and you want to get advice. Um, uh, uh, who should you who should you talk to? Uh, so the the easiest thing to do is to talk to one of your former professors, uh, email them and say I'm you know, thinking of becoming a legal scholar and I have this topic. What do you think? Uh, and uh, if not one of your professors, a professor at the school where you graduated, or if you're in school now, uh, where you are. Um, and you know, obviously, you want to be very very um, uh, 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 nice in the email. You're asking for a favor. Would you be willing to offer feedback? Um, but oftentimes somebody at your school should be able to help you. Uh, and you can another approach, which sometimes works, is to just contact people in the field. Um, that usually is a little bit of a mixed bag because sometimes people in the field will um, respond. Sometimes uh, people in the field will be super busy. Or they ever, people are generally going to be busy, especially when they're emailed by somebody they don't know, um, saying, help me. Uh, but sometimes that works, and I've, I've tried. Uh, those of you that are interested in Fourth Amendment law, you know, if you email me with an idea for an article, I'll, I'll, I'll I, I've promised, I've, I've pledged uh, to respond uh, uh, to that. Uh, so, so it's those are different ways of doing it. That in terms of asking for help, though, I think it's a, a thing to keep in mind. If you can write a, a request for help that can be answered relatively briefly, that will work better than a request for help that is uh, a big time commitment. So for example, sometimes the request for help will be, um, I'm interested in writing on this topic. Here's my idea. Do you have any sort of instant thoughts or ideas for you know articles that I should read that are relevant to this? Or th does it ring a bell, basically? And this is sort of like a, um, make sure I'm not cr on a crazy wrong track. And that's something that somebody can write back in five minutes, and that's easy. The harder ask is to say, um, I'm writing on this topic, you know, could we set up a call and talk to me about, about this? So that's sort of like, that's gonna take time, right? You gotta find it, do the scheduling, you gotta make the call, you gotta take a lot of time. And so um, 
do the first one, not the second one. That's my recommendation. Or you'll get a, a, a better response rate if you if you ask the question, ask for help in a way that can be easily answered. And then sometimes that will lead to more help and, and a, a, a connection. Um, but it's really up to the person writing. They need to, I think it's helpful if you present that in a way that is not putting a big burden on the person you're asking for help. Um, Different case, of course, if you're talking about one of your former professors or somebody you were a research assistant for or something like that. Or you can feel, you know, you, you can ask for more from someone who, who you know. But typically you want to uh, ask it in a way that is going to be a, a light ask rather than a, than a heavy one. Uh, okay. So hopefully these were uh, useful answers uh, uh, to, to your questions. Thank you so much for watching and for listening. I've, I've enjoyed these interviews and I've got... Um, we're going to keep doing a couple more interviews uh, on the show. I probably will uh, yeah, at least maybe five or six more, and I might at that point call it off for a while, uh, uh, call it you know a season, and then come back to it maybe some other time. Uh, but a few more episodes at least planned, and I'm really looking forward to it. And thank you so much for watching and listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Legal Academy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us at wherever you rate podcasts. If you'd like to watch a video version of this episode, you can find it on YouTube at channel The Legal Academy. Finally, you can also follow us on Twitter at The Legal Academy. Thank you.